0: Well, uh, good morning. My name is Tim Clemens and there are some stories that they don't include in children's Bibles and that is definitely one of them. Uh, It's not the only story of sexual assault in the Bible, but it's certainly the longest and easily the most graphic and detailed. Uh, We're not just told that it happened, which is normally how it happens. Instead, we're taken through every step of the crime from... Uh, premeditation through to its devastating consequences. We're also brought into the room and forced to overhear Tamar begging four times for Amnon not to go through with it. Uh, it's a devastating piece of scripture. And so it rightly raises the question why would something like this be included in our Bibles? See, to state the obvious, the Bible is not commercial TV. And so you could imagine a story like this being included in some popular TV show, uh, maybe to generate ratings, maybe to generate a bit of hype, perhaps even controversy, maybe even to titillate the twisted depravity of viewers. But that's not how the Bible works. Um, uh, Paul in Romans 15.4 says, Everything... That was written in the past, so he's referring to the scriptures, the Bible, was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and in the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. This story was included in our Bibles to teach us, uh, in particular to teach us encouragement, endurance, and to give us hope. And now if you're sitting there going, how on earth does that story give encouragement and hope? Uh, You're not alone. Uh, Charles and I were uh, having this exact conversation during the week. Why did God give us this? Here's where we landed. Uh, It was actually Charles' suggestion. He he says, I wonder if in the wisdom of God, he knew that we needed at least one story like this. See, during the week, I read a book uh, called Rid of My Disgrace. Hope and Healing for Victims of Sexual Assault. That's an excellent book. I uh, certainly recommend it. Uh, In particular, if assault is at all part of your story. Uh, But throughout the book, each of the main chapters was interspersed with a story of a victim of sexual assault. Now, those stories did a few things. On the one hand, they really rubbed your face in the evilness of evil. Uh, You couldn't help but get to the end Well, there's no chance you're getting to the end and that you're ignorant of what human beings are capable of. Actually, more you are broken by just the utter tragedy of what some people have to suffer at the hands of others. On the other hand, each of the victims in their story also shared their story of healing and how they'd found incredible hope and restoration in Jesus Christ. And so while it was very difficult reading it was also, curiously, a book of encouragement and hope. And so part of me wonders if God includes this chapter in our Bibles for a similar reason. On the one hand, we need to be taught what human beings are capable of, partly so that we can do whatever we can to lovingly protect the vulnerable amongst us from undergoing it, but also so that we are left with no illusions about our own need for salvation and redemption. But also, in the context of the whole Bible, the tragedy and wickedness of stories like 2 Samuel 13, I feel like they make the promises of hope and restoration all the more beautiful, so you can't get to it at the end of a story like this one and just say, come Lord Jesus, come. So we are going to jump into the story in a moment, uh, trusting that God is able to teach us, to encourage us, to give us hope. Uh, but I want to uh, say two things before we jump in. And the first is that I want to invite us today to see what happens in the story as a representative example, now a, a fairly vicious example, but a represented example of a broader category of sin that I'm going to call sexual assault. Uh, Now, just as a heads up, I'm not trying to be technical in my use of language here. Some people will draw a distinction between assault and abuse or sexual assault and child abuse. I'm certain there are good reasons for doing that. Uh, But today, just partly for the sake of simplicity, I want to combine the two. Uh, If I kind of switch between the two, uh, it's by accident. I'm I'm not speaking about two different things. Um, But in terms of what I'm referring to, Uh, I'm going to be specific here, Uh, so forgive me for doing so, but I actually think it's important for us to know what it is that we're talking about here. Uh, When I'm uh, talking about sexual assault, I'm referring to at least three kinds of non-consensual sexual behaviour. Number one, uh, there's the attempted or the completed sex act, which involves any contact or penetration of the genitals, the mouth, the anus either hand, finger, mouth, genitals, or any other object. Attempted or completed sex act. Two, there's unwanted touching, either directly or through clothing, of the genitals, anus, groin, breast, inner thigh, or buttocks. And then third, there's non-contact assault, which includes voyeurism, sometimes called a peeping tom. Uh, There's flashing, there's exposure to pornography, There's verbal sexual harassment or taking or sharing nude photos of or with an individual without their consent. Grey City, all of that is assault and none of it is okay. Uh, Or to put it slightly differently, if Amnon stopped short of rape and did any of the things that we've just listed, it would still be vile and wicked. The other thing I want us to understand is that this is not just a problem for women. Uh, One in four women, we are told, have been sexually assaulted, but one in six men have been assaulted as well. It's also not just an adult problem. If you take the victims out and just narrow in on the children, uh, in terms of the children, 10% of victims are under three, 28% are between four and seven, 26% between eight and 11, and 36% were 12 or older. Uh, what's more when it comes to the kids uh, the majority of kids know their attacker only 7% of children are attacked by a stranger finally uh, the highest age group at risk uh, the highest risk age group is 12 to 34 within that uh, girls aged 16 to 19 are four times more likely than anyone else in the general population to be attacked and tragically, boys aged 16 to 19 are most likely to be the perpetrators. Now, part of the reason that I share that information with us is that while we don't have yet all that many 16 to 19 year olds, though we do have some, in our community, we do have a lot of kids. And what's more, those kids are going to grow up to be young men and young women And so it's our responsibility not just to protect them, but also to train them in righteousness so that they are able to protect and care for others. Finally, uh, it's often said it takes a village to raise a child. The more I've read this passage, the more I've become convinced you could also say it takes a village to abuse a victim. And it's not always the case. Uh, And this side of heaven, uh, there's ultimately nothing we can do to completely eradicate all chance of something as terrible as this happening again. But the more I've read the story, the more I've seen time after time, point after point in this story where it could have been stopped. Uh, At the end of the day, in many ways, it's both the active and the passive failure, sins of Tamar's friends and family that allowed her or made it possible for her to suffer what she does. And so my uh, goal today is relatively simple. I wanna spend the bulk of our time just working through the story. That will take the bulk of our time. As we do, I'll note along the way, points at which it could have been stopped. And once we've done that, I wanna finish by offering four quick reflections that might, I pray, offer hope and healing for those who've been impacted by this at some point in the past. Let's jump in. If you have a Bible, 2 Samuel 13. Let's start in verse 1. It says, In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Now, we will come back to Amnon and Tamar in a moment, but notice that Tamar here is described not as the daughter of David though she was but the sister of Absalom uh, that is significant in the broader context of the book and so I just want to say a quick thing on this now because uh, if you're with us last week you'll remember uh, we looked at the story of David's ab- uh, adultery and the murder of Uriah and I said last week that was that was the pivot point of the whole book that's chapter 11 and 12 before then David and his kingdom have risen like the series From that moment, they fall. The reason we're introduced to Absalom here is because Absalom is really going to be the key player in David's downfall. He's the focus of the next eight chapters, 13 to 20, uh, because as a result of what happens in today's passage, he's going to go and kill Amnon and then lead a rebellion against David. So I just say that he's not really going to be much of a focus for us today, but I, I guess I want you to remember him Because in your community groups this week, next week, he's going to be a major player. That's Absalom. But let's come back. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar. Uh, Amnon was the crown prince. He's David's firstborn son. This is the guy who is in line to inherit the kingdom should David pass away. And Tamar is Amnon's half-sister. So they share a father in David, but they're born by different mothers. And the narrator tells us, Amnon fell in love with Tamar. Now, as you read on, uh, it's pretty obvious that this is not a sacrificial, self-giving self love, as we're commanded to show. Uh, rather, it is a lustful infatuation. And so in verse 2, it goes on. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin And it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Amnon's love is a wicked obsession. right? She's a daughter of the king. She's a princess. And so uh, the only time that David would have been able to see her or interact with her is with everyone else in public. But in the privacy of Amnon's mind, it's a different story. Uh, Tamar is always there. Uh, She's there when he wakes up. She's there as he goes about his day, you can be sure. She's there as he lays in bed at night. She has become the object of his desire. And I I use the language of object intentionally. Did you notice that last little bit? It seemed impossible for him to do anything not for her, not with her, but to her. Uh, In his mind, he'd already reduced her to an object He's made himself sick with desire. So then we're told about his friend, verse 3 and 4. Or verse three. Now Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. That word advisor there is literally friend. And so he is also, Jonadab is also Amnon's cousin. So like any good friend, he notices that his friend doesn't look so good. So he asks him. Why are you looking so haggard? Unfortunately for Jonadab, this is where his role as a good friend ends. Because how would a good friend respond when Amnon tells him why he looks so haggard? Uh, Maybe a good friend would respond to Amnon by saying, she's your sister. right? That's not only gross, it's also illegal. Leviticus says you're not allowed to marry your sister, not even a half-sister. So just don't go there. Uh, maybe he would take it to Proverbs 5 and say, do not be intoxicated with a forbidden woman, for your ways are in full view of the Lord and he examines all your paths. Nothing good is going to come from going down this path. And none. That's what a good friend would have done. That's what you should do if you ever have a friend in a similar situation. Seriously, if Jonadab had been a good friend, then Tamar may never have suffered. But Jonadab wasn't a good friend. He's the ancient equivalent of the guy who uh, gives his mate a date rape drug or tells him, hey, just buy her a couple of extra drinks and then take her home. He's not a good friend. And so in verse 5, the advice comes, go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. Uh, Jonadab may not have done the deed, but with advice like that, he at least shares some of the responsibility. Again, it takes a village. Sandon listens to him. In verse 6 and 7, we read this. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace. Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. There is so much that is tragic about that, isn't there? To begin with, how on earth is David not suspicious of Amnon's request? Seriously, the only thing that's going to make you feel better is your half-sister preparing bread in your sight and then feeding it to you from her hand, you creep. The signs are all there. David should have known that something was off. And yet he's he's either blind or maybe somehow subconsciously chooses to ignore it. We'll think as to why that is later. And Jesus told his disciples, be shrewd as vipers and innocent as doves. David does the opposite. He sends his doves into the viper's nest. Grace City, I want to encourage you, be careful who you allow to look after your children. Are your nieces, your nephews? Remember, it's only 7% of the time they don't know the attacker. So if they're staying at a friend's house, make sure you know who's gonna be home. Do they have an older brother? Is there some relative that's staying with them that you maybe don't know too much about? If you're not comfortable sending your kid there, don't send your dove into the viper's nest. You're not being a helicopter parent, you're doing your job. And as they get older, You don't have to say yes to every request or party invitation they get. I know I'm ranting now, but can I beg you, as far as it is up to you, don't let them drink before they're 18. I don't care if you did it, don't let them do it. It's not only illegal, it's also playing with fire. Remember, girls aged 16 to 19 are four times more likely than everyone else in the rest of the population to be sexually assaulted, and when asked, 50% of them said alcohol had something to do with it. Don't let him drink. Uh, as a father myself, one of the most... One of the most uh, tragic parts of this whole story <laughs> is that Tamar went to Amnon At David's request. Now, does that make him responsible? Well, at the end of the day, we don't know. Maybe maybe he's totally innocent. He missed the mark. We don't know. It's not the point of the story. But you can't help but wonder if she had a more switched-on father, uh, maybe she wouldn't have suffered as she did. It takes a village. Let's keep reading verse 8 and 9. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. And then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Uh, I want to vomit when I read those words. She made the bread in his sight. How is she in your sight? I see a beautiful woman with a beautiful heart. She loves her dad. She loves her brother. She's just trying to do something nice for them both. How is she in his sight? She's an object of his sexual desire. And so as a lion crouches in the grass watching his prey, so Amnon lies in his bed waiting for his moment to pounce. Comes in verse 9. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. And so everyone left him. Again surely this is another moment where things could have been stopped. Uh, Even if the servants, now you say he's the crown prince, even even if the servants felt like they couldn't question his authority, surely someone could run to David or someone could run to someone else with authority or at least strength, power to stop and intervene. Um, But no, they, they all just leave the room. Uh, And as you keep reading, it seems like at least one of them just stands by the door while the whole thing goes down, takes a village. Uh, But at last, Amnon is alone with Tamar. This is what he's been fantasizing about for the last few weeks. And so at his request, she brings in the food and then he finally drops the mask. Rather than eating the food, he says... Come to bed with me, my sister. I've tried to imagine the horror of what went through Tamar's head as that happened. Everyone has just left the room. She's all alone. And before her, the brother whom she probably loved has transformed into a beast. And so in the end, she's forced to make a series of defenses that really Jonadab and possibly even David should have already done on her behalf. And so read verse 12. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a wicked thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. It's an obvious case to make. Amnon, this isn't how God's people behave. Amnon, what about me? What about my disgrace? Amnon, don't be like one of the wicked fools. Amnon, go and talk to the king four times. She pleads with him not to go through with it. Uh, That last one about talking to the king, uh, most likely she's just trying to buy time. Uh, We've already said it was against the law in Leviticus, so chances were David's not going to allow it. But none of the arguments work, and so in verse 14 we read, But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Uh, Grace City's strength. Is given for service. Strength is given for service, not the satisfaction of your own sinful desires. Now strength comes in various forms, doesn't it? There's the strength of the old over the weak, of the big over the small, often the man over the woman, uh, of the employer over the employee, of the experienced over the inexperienced, Strength exists in various forms, but it's always given for service. I can I encourage you, if you have kids, if and when you have kids, especially your sons, can you teach them this? I tell my kids all the time, God makes us strong so we can care for others. I tell Tyler in particular, mate, one day you're gonna grow up and you're gonna be stronger than Brooke. You gotta be real careful how you play with her. See, our boys need to understand their, str- their strength is not evil. Uh, it's not toxic, despite what the culture tells them. They don't have to apologize for being strong. God made them that way. But they also need to understand why. God makes us strong so we can serve others. Again, how things might have been different if Tamar, uh, for Tamar, if David had taught his sons properly. And then again, he wasn't a great role model, was he? Remember last week? He saw, he sent, he took, he slept. Dare we say, like father, like son. Let's keep moving, verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he'd loved her. Amnon said, get up. And get out. That's a fairly common psychological reaction, I understand. I don't know why. Maybe he, maybe she now sees him for what he is and he hates her. Maybe she forces him to see himself for what he is. Not a man, but a monster. Not a brother, but a beast. Get out. Either way, though, she in response says something very surprising. Verse 16, No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. Uh, that will probably come as a shock to most of us. Uh, particularly because we're assuming that she wants to get out of his presence as quickly as she possibly can. Um, thing is... Uh, it's not a request for presence as much as it is a request for provision. You see that phrase, do not send me away, that's a technical term for divorce. And so she's, she's asking, she's begging him not to discard her like rubbish on the trash heap. See, the tragic reality is that after something like this, Tamar's chances of finding another man to protect her and provide for her, which is what she needed in that culture, is slim to none and therefore despite how repugnant of the thought the thought must have been to her she's asking him to marry her not because she liked the idea you can be certain of that but because as far as she's concerned this is the only way in which she might be provided for in an ongoing way and have the opportunity to bear legitimate children that might grow up and care for her in her old age. But for the second time, Amnon refuses to listen to her. Verse 17, he called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. I hate to tell you, but the word woman is not there in the original. Just get this. Get this out of my sight. She's not a person anymore. She's a this. And so the servant, who must have been by the door the whole time, comes, collects her and puts her out. Uh, Did he do it? Gently and with tears streaming down his face and mouthing the words, I'm sorry, I doubt it. And so in verse 19 we read, Tamar put ashes on her head, tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. Breaks your heart, doesn't it? Uh, Ashes is a sign of humiliation and disgrace. So she puts them on her head. The robe, which was a sign of her elevated status as a princess, she tears it as a sign of everything she's lost. And then she leaves, crying aloud, tears streaming down her face, walking through the dusty streets on her way back home. Can you see her in your mind's eye? Can you picture it? I hope you can. Particularly, uh, I want you to picture this if you have a habit of using pornography. See, some people say uh, pornography is harmless. Uh, some will even go so far as to say pornography is about female empowerment. No, it's not. It's about abuse. It's about assault. Tamar here is a vivid picture of what the pornography industry does to woman after woman after woman. And when you use pornography, you fuel the industry. It takes a village. Verse 20. Her brother Amnon, sorry, Absalom, said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Now, if that was all we were told, we might assume he's attempting a cover-up. Maybe maybe he doesn't want to bring the family name into disrepute. If it were the case, it wouldn't be the first time or the last that a victim is told to remain quiet to protect the family. Uh, But given he's about to go and kill Amnon, we know that's not the case. Instead, it seems more to be just like he's saying, hey, don't take it to heart because I have I'm, I'm about to wipe this guy off the face of the planet. And so the story finishes in verse 21. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And so he should have been. His son had done a wicked thing and raped his daughter. You know what he does about it? Absolutely nothing. See, for all David's strengths, uh, he had two key weaknesses. The first is beautiful women. We saw that last week. And the second is his sons. We're going to see that today and next week and possibly the week after. I say there is weakness because he had a complete inability to discipline them. And that is not just my assessment of it. Take a look at what uh, the author of One King says, right? By this time... Absalom has died. The fourth son, Adonijah, now he's trying to lead a rebellion against David. Have a listen to what the author says. Now, Adonijah, whose mother was Hagith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. Listen to this. His father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? Again, we, we can only imagine what might have happened if David had disciplined his sons. But I suspect it would have saved a whole lot of pain for a whole lot of people. But there you go. That's the story. And my hope is that by telling it the way I have, you've had your eyes opened to sexual assault, and that you're sufficiently motivated as a community. I I want us to be a community that does whatever we can to lovingly protect the vulnerable amongst us so that none of them ever have to experience anything like this. There's a story. Second thing I wanna do before we finish up is I wanna try and speak to those of you who might have something like this in your past. And to do this, I want to go back to Tamar's question in verse 13. She says, where could I get rid of my disgrace? Maybe that's your question too. Uh, If it is, I want to try and offer four reflections that I pray might be used by God to bring hope and healing in your life. Reflection number one, name the sin for what it was. Name the sin for what it was. Part of the reason I wanted to frame today's talk around the issue of sexual assault more broadly rather than rape uh, as just a narrow focus is that I wanted to help us see how prevalent and problematic this thing really is. See, I thank God that most of you won't have been raped. But I suspect a devastating number of you will have been sexually assaulted. Now, depending on what it was that happened to you and probably partly how you're wired, it's possible that some of you will be tempted to minimize that, maybe even deny it. Uh, Maybe there's a part of you that thinks that's the courageous thing to do. What I want to try and help you see is that part of the healing process involves naming the sin for what it was and seeing how God rages against it. Remember uh, Jesus at the tomb of uh, Lazarus, Lazarus, Uh, he doesn't have a stiff upper lip, he weeps, he wept, he wept at what sin and evil had done to his world, and you can be certain he wept at what was done to you. Uh, Miroslav Volf uh, writes this, he says, we must name the troubling past truthfully. We must come to clarity about what happened, how we reacted and how we're reacting to it now to be freed from its destructive hold on our lives. Granted, truthful naming will not by itself heal memories of wrong suffered. But without truthful naming, all measures we might undertake to heal such memories will remain incomplete. See, Without naming the sin for what it was... Uh, either by minimizing it or denying it entirely, uh, you run the risk of relying on, on things that will give you a false sense of confidence rather than turning to God for grace and mercy. You see, at the end of the day, only God is the one who is able to actually bring the true and lasting healing that you need. And so the second reflection is seek grace and mercy from Christ. Christ seek grace and mercy from Christ. See, as I give this talk, I'm acutely aware that I have no insider's knowledge of what it's like to suffer sexual assault. Over the last eight years, I've had a devastating number of both men and women share their stories, or at least part of it with me. I've read plenty of others, but I don't know what it's like from the inside out. But Jesus does. And Jesus knows what it's like to be stripped naked pinned down, abused and assaulted and then held up to public shame and ridicule. Uh, Hebrews 415 to 16 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In the middle of your suffering, you're not alone. That's not the entirety of the gospel message, but it's certainly a key part of it. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. Uh, He went there ahead of you, he's with you still. And so the author of Hebrews says, approach the throne of grace with confidence. If this is part of your story, you need grace and mercy. And grace and mercy is what God and Christ longs to give you. Three. Thirdly, remember your identity as a child of God. Remember your identity as a child of God. So for many of you, um, being a victim of sexual assault is part of your story. Again, as we've said, there's no good is going to come from denying that. It's part of your story. But it doesn't need to be the defining story. See, if you let the experience of sexual assault become the defining story of your life, you'll have an identity based on disgrace. And with that at the foundation, you'll find it very hard to not adopt an identity of used, um, unwanted, damaged goods. But if you trust in Christ, your identity is deeper than any of your wounds. And I'm not just talking about positive self-talk here. I'm not just saying you need to repeat to yourself, I am special. No, 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 no. Uh, You are special. But I'm talking about what God has declared over you. I'm talking about God's words over you. The same words that spoke creation into existence has declared over you. If you trust in Him, you are my child. You are my son, my daughter, whom I love. And so as we sing, and I suspect we'll sing today... You are chosen, not forsaken. He is for you, not against you. You're a child of God. Yes, you are. Uh, Reflecting on this, the authors have rid of my disgrace write this: This truth brings great relief because you are not doomed to live as a victim. It doesn't eliminate your wounds, nor silence your cry for deliverance or healing. But it does mean those wounds are not the final word on who you are. They don't enslave you. And determine your life. Fourth and finally, uh, grieve as one who believes in the resurrection. Grieve as one who believes in the resurrection. Uh, In Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, uh, he writes to them and tells them not to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Uh, The context is some of the people in their church have died and they're not really sure what is going to happen to them. Uh, But I love the counsel because the counsel is not, do not grieve. Of course they should grieve. They've lost loved ones. Instead, he says, don't grieve like those who have no hope, by which he's talking about their hope of the resurrection. You see, it's right for you to grieve. Something horrible and wicked has been done to you. You should grieve. But in your grief, don't do it as those who have no hope. Why? Because if you trust in Christ, then you know there is hope for the world. Now, the death of Jesus looked like the ultimate victory of shame. But the resurrection overturns and interrupts that and introduces hope. The resurrection of Jesus, what's more, is the proof that God is making all things new and that he is committed to redeeming and healing those who are his. So I want you to picture Tamar with me one last time. She's walking down the dusty street. She's got the ashes on her head. She's got the torn robe. She's got tears streaming down her face. Can you see her? I want you to hear her clear. Without the resurrection, that's the last word on Tamar. Uh, as the author of 2 Samuel describes her, she really would be a desolate woman. But the resurrection invites us to imagine a different story. It invites us to imagine a different picture. This time we're invited to see a woman, a new kind of princess, walking down a street paved with gold. She's wearing a crown of glory and a beautiful robe of righteousness. And she has a radiant smile on her face because the finger of God has wiped away all her tears. Can you see her? Can you picture her? I hope you can because if you trust in Christ, that's your hope too. Let me close. As I close, I want to say a final word uh, to the Amnons, the Jonadabs, the Davids, the door servants among us. Those who know they've played a part in the suffering of others, either directly. Uh, through the misuse of power or the offering of bad advice, or perhaps indirectly through missing the signs or just failing to speak up. Uh, some of you will be utterly racked with guilt. And depending on what you've done, that might actually be the right response. But the message of the gospel is that hope and healing is available for you too. Now, it it would require a whole different sermon to unpack that, so I'm not going to do that. Instead, maybe uh, you might want to begin by a version, your own version of the four steps I've just outlined. Name your sin for what it was. That's the first and necessary step in healing. Number two, seek grace and mercy from Jesus Christ. The beautiful message of the gospel is that through the cross, you too can be rid of your disgrace. Number three, remember your identity as a child of God. This will always be a part of your story, but it doesn't have to define you. And then number four, grieve as one who believes in the resurrection because Jesus is making all things new and that includes you. And so we all pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Grace City, I would normally pray now. But I'm going to ask Danny to come forward in a moment to pray for us. Uh, Right now, Charlie's going to come up. He's just going to uh, give us uh, some music as you might want to spend a moment processing, reflecting, praying.